Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with a glorious piece showing off the Albany Symphony's amazing brass section. This is a, a very famous brass piece. It's by the French composer Paul Ducas, and it's the fanfare to his ballet La Perie. It's only about a three- or four-minute piece, but it is quite dazzling and sumptuous, particularly in that amazing acoustic of the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall. Ducas wrote this ballet late in his life, not too late in his life, actually, in, I think, uh, 1912, and he lived into the 30s, but it was his last major piece, and considered by many his masterpiece, although never quite as famous as a piece that he'd written a little bit earlier, an orchestral scherzo called The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Anyway, the ballet is about a 20-minute, fabulous, Asian-sounding story about a Persian prince who goes to the ends of the earth looking for the lotus flower that instills eternal youth in whoever finds it. But I must say that the fanfare doesn't really relate to the story much. It does sort of conjure this oriental atmosphere. But I think it was really put in place by Ducas because the ballet proper begins very, very softly. And in order to get the rambunctious Paris ballet audience to be quiet, uh, he decided he better front the piece with this dazzling opening that would shut everybody's chatting down. So in fact, here now is just the fanfare, the famous fanfare by Paul Ducas. It's the fanfare to his ballet La Perie. The brass section of the Albany Symphony performs. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was the brass section of the Albany Symphony performing the first work on our program, Paul Ducas' fanfare to his ballet La Perie. Next on the concert uh, was a quite fabulous new piece by the famous American composer John Corleano, a composer who's well-known in the world of concert music, has written a number of major, major works, symphonies, concertos, and opera for the Metropolitan as well, but also is well-known as a film composer, uh, having most notably and most recently written the music for the film The Red Violin, for which he won the Academy Award. Our soloist in Corleano's new percussion concerto, Conjurer, was the fabulous Scottish-born percussionist Dame Evelyn Glennie. But I have to tell you that, unfortunately, Dame Evelyn, who's a wonderful colleague and a brilliant artist, uh, seems to have a policy, as do some other artists, that she really does not allow any of her live performances to be broadcast on radio. I think she'd just rather have it be a one-time event. Of course, a, a good argument in favor of subscribing to come hear the symphony live. And also, when she uh, has a, a work that she wants to uh, ha- have a, a life for beyond the concert hall, she goes in and spends many, many hours recording in the studio to make it absolutely perfect. Well, the bad news is we're not allowed to, to play the piece for you right now. The good news is that the day after we performed it, we went back into the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall and made a glorious commercial recording of it, which will be released I believe, next year on an all-Corleano disc featuring the Albany Symphony and featuring this glorious percussion concerto with Dame Evelyn Glennie, Conjurer by John Corleano. 
However, I thought it would be nice to substitute in another fantastic work for percussion and orchestra. This is another a work that the Albany Symphony played a number of years ago, and it's by another of my very favorite composers. It's by the Greek-American composer George Suntakis. It's on a Koch release, and uh, it's a, a work that I just fell in love with. It's, it's not technically a percussion concerto, although it was written for Dame Evelyn Glennie, and she premiered it, and uh, it features the percussion very, very prominently throughout the whole piece. But uh, the percussion is in a certain way embedded into the, the piece, which has a, a very strong narrative sensibility. Uh, I should mention George Santakis is this year and next year's Albany Symphony Music Alive uh, composer-in-residence. There's a wonderful program that the Composer Advocacy Organization, Meet the Composer, and uh, the League of American Orchestras, our umbrella organization, have banded together to fund called Music Alive. And what it does is it puts composers in communities for an extended period of time and allows them to do really major work with an orchestra. So George is with us for the first of two years, and actually, in just a couple of weeks, we'll be premiering a beautiful new clarinet concerto, a klezmer-based clarinet concerto, on our big season-ending American Music Festival, the weekend of May 22nd, 21st, 22nd, 23rd. Also on that big festival, number of events, uh, including another major work by John Corleano for voice and orchestra, voice, orchestra, and electronics, called uh, Vocalese. That piece will actually be the companion uh, on the Naxos disc that we'll be releasing of John Corleano's music next year. Anyway, back to George Santakis. George is a Greek-American, having born in this country in New York City on, on Long Island, very close to his Greek ancestry. And so a number of his pieces, notably this piece, Miraloya, uh, have a, a great deal of Greek culture and Greek uh, background to them. Uh, Miraloya is, in essence, uh, it's actually a, a song of of sorrow. It's sort of an improvised song that Greek women traditionally would sing in olden days in little villages throughout Greece when a terrible loss occurred, when they lost a child or a husband. Uh, and it's a sort of incredibly powerful, soulful, sorrowful song that's just improvised on the, on the spot. And on one of George's many visits to Greece, he happened to hear a recording of a number of Miroloyas that had been collected uh, by various folk researchers, and he was drawn particularly to one of them. It was a very beautiful song, and he decided actually to create a whole piece around this song. So what's fascinating about this this piece, Miroloya, is it's a, a six-movement work for percussion and orchestra, and in the sixth and final movement, a, a soprano comes out on stage and sings the actual kind of unadorned Miraloya on which the entire piece is based. And sort of teleologically, everything leads up to that point, but in a way, when you hear it more than once, you begin to realize that all the material of this final Miraloya is, in fact, the material that makes up the piece from the beginning to that point, some 20, 25 minutes into it. So, again, the work is in, is in six movements, and it begins actually with a very impressive percussion solo uh, that the, the soloist uh, gives out before the orchestra ever enters. And George's idea for the piece was that the percussionist and the voice of the percussion is, in fact, the voice of this young soldier, this young Greek man, the husband of the woman singing the Miraloya, who is dying on a hillside somewhere, uh, wounded in battle and being left to die. And, and the percussion is actually his voice almost communicating telepathically with his wife, who's pregnant with his soon-to-be-born child. And throughout the piece, it's as if he goes through these various stages of of death and dying and, and saying farewell to the world, and ultimately of saying farewell to, to the wife who finally responds in this last touching sixth movement. And also another very interesting aspect of the piece is that not only do the percussion and the orchestra interact a great deal through the piece, but um, George employs a, a sort of ad hoc 
Greek church chorus. The actual specification in the score is that the choral part should be sung by the instrumentalists. Uh, but he found in performance that um, you know these are very traditional Greek Orthodox chants, hymns, church hymns, Kyrie Eleison, etc., that, that the orchestra has to sing. And he found that it helped greatly to draft uh, the local Greek church choir in whatever community was playing the piece to sort of stand inside the orchestra and chant, not not in a real choral way, not in a terribly prepared way. So, so the idea is to sort of, as Manoli, this young soldier is dying, he sort of thinks back to church and to the congregation and to his community, and he sort of hears the voices of, of his his home and of his people. So we were delighted in this performance to be joined by the uh, the men of the St. Sophia Greek Orthodox Church in our community in Albany. They did a beautiful job along with the members of the orchestra learning to and, and very much enjoying ch- chanting these little snippets of Greek Orthodox chant. So that's pretty much the outline of the piece. I found it to be an incredibly moving and beautiful and ultimately life-affirming piece, even though it is about tragedy and and ends in tragedy and in this very sorrowful, tragic song. The six movements are, one, introit, two, crotales angelorum, three, soson curiae, four, labyrinth, five, eonia imnimi, and six, miroloia, finally the the song itself. So here now, um, actually, the other greatest Scottish percussionist uh, on our recording and on our performance, uh, it happened that Evelyn Glennie wasn't available, so we turned to another brilliant Scottish percussionist. It's fascinating that, that the two most important solo percussionists in the world are both from very near each other's homes in Scotland. This is the young uh, Scottish percussionist Colin Curry, a soloist, uh, playing with the Albany Symphony on this Koch recording. The Albany Symphony is conducted by me, David Allen Miller, in George Santakis's work for percussion, Singer and Orchestra, Miroloya. This is the Conductor's Notes Podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The second half of our program featured a very gifted young New York-based composer still at Juilliard and, and still actually a student of John Corleano, Comrade Winslow. Conrad is a native of Alaska and has lived in New York these past few years and uh, has been very much influenced by the incredible traffic in New York City. And so he decided when we asked him to write a a short, jaunty piece uh, to go along with Corleano's percussion concerto, uh, he decided to write a piece not about traffic, but inspired by sort of the ideas of traffic, of all this motion and yet all this stasis as traffic occurs. Uh, And so his piece, Travel Lightly, is really just a, a kind of whimsical exploration of different kinds of motion as might be expressed in traffic. So here now, uh, the world premiere of Conrad Winslow's charming little piece, Travel Lightly. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was the world premiere of Conrad Winslow's Travel Lightly, a piece inspired by traffic in New York City, but not sounding like traffic, just inspired by the, the motion of traffic. Now, to close our program, we wanted to feature one of the great works of all times, a beautiful, powerful work from the classical period. This is one of Mozart's final symphonies, not one of the final three, but the one that came just before them, his Symphony Number no. 38, the Prague Symphony. 
The Prague Symphony is so-called Prague because it was premiered in Prague. And as you probably remember, Prague was a city that absolutely embraced Mozart. They loved his music, and in a way, much more unconditionally than Vienna, which was a much more fickle kind of town. The Bohemian audiences in Prague just absolutely embraced everything Mozart brought them. They, they gave the first performances of Don Giovanni, and that was considered their opera. They loved The Marriage of Figaro, and they really embraced every piece that Mozart played. So he was delighted to bring this piece to them, and ultimately it sort of just developed a moniker as the Prague Symphony. It probably wasn't actually written in Prague, uh, and there's nothing Prague-related about it, but it, it is an astounding piece uh, coming in 1786, just a couple of years before that last those last three symphonies, and just about a half a decade before Mozart's death. Mozart was extremely influenced by and knowledgeable about and um, close to Baroque style. You know, we think of Bach as being in this much earlier period from Mozart. You know, Mozart and Haydn were really, along with Beethoven, were the, the, the grand figures of what we now call the classical period, whereas Bach was the, the consummate master and the culmination of the, the prior period, the Baroque period. But of course, back in Mozart's time, they didn't think of Bach as being from the Baroque period. They just thought of him as being from 40 or 50 years earlier, or 30 or 40 years earlier. And Mozart was very much influenced by Bach and really mastered Baroque counterpoint and a Baroque music theory. So he could write music that sounded extremely Baroque, and he loved to write fugues, you know, those kinds of pieces where essentially the same voice will go, but start at different points and, and last different durations. So kind of these wonderful puzzle pieces. And in fact, the first movement of the Prague Symphony is pretty much a, a, a fugal movement in that it's made up in, almost entirely of fugues. It begins with a, a very slow, very majestic introduction, kind of uncharacteristic for Mozart, that leads into this brilliant fugal movement, which is, I think, posited by most of us who love and know Mozart's works as perhaps his greatest symphonic movement ever. And then, interestingly, there's a, a beautiful slow movement, but no scherzo. So it's only a three-movement symphony, which we think of as being very unconventional. But actually, it turns out that in the classical period, in a certain way, the four-movement symphony was a little bit more unusual than the three-movement symphony. Symphonies had largely grown out of these French overtures, which were kind of ABA forms, fast, slow, fast. And a lot of the earliest symphonies from the 1740s and 50s actually are in three movements. So in a way, the idea of a symphony that didn't include a minuet, that was only three movements, is, is actually would not have been too shocking in Mozart's time, although it seems very unusual in our own time. But this is often called the symphony without minuet, uh, because, of course, it's missing that, but it's, it's quite a glorious piece of regardless of it missing a minuet. So a beautiful slow movement, and then finally a very, very energetic and thrilling, but extremely difficult to play finale, uh, one of the most difficult. It's one of the, the pieces that shows up on string uh, instrument auditions with major orchestras all over the world because it's so devilishly difficult. One more word about Mozart and, and the influence of, of Bach and Handel and the Baroque period upon him. Uh, I've been spending the last month or so working very, very hard uh, learning Mozart's opera, Così fan tutte, which was written about three or four years after this piece, premiered in, in 1790, after The Marriage of Figaro and Don Giovanni, but before The Magic Flute. And I've been so struck in studying that piece at how particularly the music of one figure, of Fior de Ligi, one of the sisters in that opera, is very Baroque in style. It's as if he's rewriting Handel opera overtures. And uh, so there again, it's, it's not at all surprising to me that he, he handles Baroque structures, this wonderful fugal form of the first movement, with such ease and such grace and such complete conviction and uh, style. Uh, he really knew his Baroque style, and he could write 
just as easily in that as he could in the, the so-called prevailing, much much simpler and, and what we call homophonic style, the sort of melody plus accompaniment style that, that we more frequently associate with the classical period. It's one of the things that makes Mozart such a, an absolutely untouchable uh, master, that he could assimilate a style and make it entirely his own, almost effortlessly. And indeed he does that in this great symphony, Mozart's 38th symphony, the Prague Symphony. It's played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion.